Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. Today, the Premier League returns with a bang as Spurs shock the champions Manchester City. Elsewhere, Manchester United run riot and Brentford's return to the top flight is a night to cherish. I'm Hugh Wisencroft and this is The Game. And I'm joined today to discuss the opening weekend by Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark from The Times. How are you guys? Very well, Hugh. Thank Very you. Very well, Hugh. Good, 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 good. It was a cracking opening weekend, wasn't it? 34 goals in all. I just, I'm going to get it out of the way early. This ball stays hit, doesn't it? <laughs> it certainly seems so. I'm, I'm a little bit... Um cautious about putting all down to the ball Hugh uh, particularly as my dear old nan used to have the phrase whenever I would get annoyed about the football as a kid she said now now don't worry it's just the way the ball bounces I'd be like no it's not it's because this guy didn't mark the guy at the back post and now we're losing no no it's just the way the ball bounces so I'm a little bit reticent to just put it down to this new fancy Nike ball but the players certainly seem to be enjoying it don't they a new more more lenient referees yeah this is a positive surely we predicted this, didn't we, on the game podcast towards the end of last season. And we'd, I think we said, uh, I can't remember what the game was. I was desperately trying to think of it. But there was a game where the VAR was almost a little bit ignored. And everyone was like, this is brilliant. This is great. And you're like, yeah, this is this is what we had before. Referees just making decisions. <laughs> I mean, we'll, I'm sure we'll come on to it. But there were some interesting decisions that were allowed to go this weekend, I thought. But um, anyway, yeah, all for it. All for it. Let the game flow. Mm, all for it as an EFL fan. You know my views on it. We'll come to it a little bit later on. But let's start with the results of the weekend for many. Uh, no Harry came for Spurs and he wasn't missed this weekend. Nuno Espirito Santo's side uh, beating the defending champions Manchester City 1-0 at home. Hyungmin Son with a lovely strike from distance. Not great defending from Manchester City, and it wasn't their best day, to be perfectly frank. But it was a special day for Spurs with the fans back in North London, and the, the performance was able to change the narrative around the club right now as well, Gregor. Yeah, very much so. I think, you know, obviously there's been so much talk about Harry Kane, and the, the Harry Kane was uh, had his name chorused in a slightly unflattering way. Um <laughs> But you know, with the fans back inside that that huge stadium and the you know the flags fluttering before kickoff, and it was an incredible looking atmosphere. That performance just kind of you know I think it just it just dampened all those all those side issues you know just for ninety minutes and showed that there is at least some optimism and there should be should be some hope ahead. Just whatever happens with Harry Kane, I thought it was just a really really disciplined performance, and it's not really something you've been accustomed to associating with, with Spurs. City are always at their most dangerous when in those kind of little inside channels in between the lines and they just didn't let them get the ball there. There was a moment in the in the first half and it was kind of the way they were clearly setting up where all the front three and midfield three were within the width of the the, the centre circle and Manchester City were, were just basically letting them go out wide to the full backs and if it went out to Sterling or Grealish, they trusted Jaffet to Tanganga, who was who was immense defensively, one on one against them, and even regular on the other side against Mares. Mares was good for the first ten minutes. City were good for the first 10, 15 minutes, but Regulon, who I think you know slightly questionable defensively, put in a really solid performance that way as well. So, as I say, really disciplined. They they channeled them where they where they wanted wanted City to go, and they trusted their players to do their jobs and be disciplined. And on the counter-attack, I actually thought they were a bit ragged. There were moments in the first half, Son got Son was through and he had the chance to take take on Aki or Diaz. He maybe he sometimes turned that down, sometimes went back, slowed down the play. But they were a threat on the break with their, with their pace. And, you know, I think as the season develops, we'll probably see more of that because that is what Nuno's Wolves team were, were best at, really. Impressive performance from Spurs, Tom? Yeah, it was. I thought they were good. I don't want to be the guy on the opening weekend podcast to say, "Now let's not all get carried away." But I am. I'm gonna. That's going to be my catchphrase of the day. Let's not get carried away. Um, they were good. They were good. And but how often have we seen it with a team where so much of the attention and focus is on one issue or one player, and actually that allows the manager to group and galvanise the rest of the squad in a very simple game plan and a way of playing that becomes quite effective. Um, in a strange way, I actually wonder whether it helped Nuno Espirito Santo to have all that talk about Harry Kane before the game and during the summer. Because as a new manager, it's, it's, quite, it's quite a move for him 
we know obviously that Tottenham had a lot of uh, talk and options with other managers. By all accounts, he wasn't their first choice. And actually for him to be able to just plan for the game against City, set up his team in the way that he did, as Gregor says, with counter-attacking options, and then just let everyone else talk about Harry Kane probably worked perfectly for him in terms of his game plan beforehand. But no, I thought they were good. I thought they were good. I thought they showed promise. I don't think that's the best version of Manchester City we'll see this season. Um, of course, we've got to remember that Manchester City lost at Tottenham last season as well, early on in the campaign. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it was it was good. It was good from Tottenham. I, I wasn't that surprised, to be honest. I think Manchester City, are, you know, of all the teams, when you have so many top players, when there's a big European uh, or an international tournament, you're going to suffer the hangover of that. They've got a lot of players still missing and ready to come back. So they'll come again. Solid start from Tottenham, but I'm not getting carried away. I think, in fairness, Nuno wasn't getting carried away either. I mean, he saw in his interview afterwards, he was saying, you know, the way that City started in the first 15 minutes, they had some really good chances. And he said, I think Nuno said, we were we were lucky. We kind of, but then we grew into it and we rode that storm and the players stayed strong. Great to see Oliver Skip playing as well. And I'm giving someone, giving someone like that a chance. He was brilliant at Norwich last season. He was really, he was excellent. As I say, very disciplined alongside Hoiberg. Gave Ali the chance to go forward. And the front three, Moura was a real threat. Bergwijn, they've got pace in that attack. So that, you know, I think that was a kind of blueprint of what we will see from Spurs against teams who let them play like that. The challenge is when Spurs are the team who've got to break down the opposition. And I do think Manchester City will uh, will have a pretty decent season given uh, their substitutes bench was probably stronger than their starting eleven. So uh, I still think there's more to come from them. But it was it was important for Tottenham Hotspur to change the narrative around the club. Do, 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 does anyone think watching that game that maybe we've underestimated Spurs going into this season that they will have more in the tank than we thought in terms of a push for top six, I'm going to say. I doubt top four. They could do, definitely. But it's a, it's going to be a really interesting season. And we'll come to this later with a team like Everton. You know, you started last season with a manager in Jose Mourinho, a world-class, top, top-level, heavyweight manager. And with some star players such as Harry Kane. And your perceptions of what Tottenham are as a club, as an outsider, as a journalist, maybe become you know, these guys should be going for the top four. You know, I'm not trying to remind you of it, Hugh, but you said they'd go for the top four, they'd get the top four and things like that. Not trying to bring that up just to wind you up again. But, <laughs> it, but, I, but you then have, you, you then lose Jose Mourinho, you have a long hunt for a new manager that becomes slightly farcical. You end up, and then I'm doing this deliberately, but you end up getting the guy from Wolves and being a bit like, mm, is this that great? You may then end up losing your star player but that actually can have like almost a galvanizing effect. And as you say, it then changes the perception. It creates a bit of a siege mentality. The fans all get behind the players that are left left behind by treacherous Harry Kane. And Nuno can then galvanize the team in that way. And as you say, it might then become that everyone's Tottenham finished fifth and everyone's going, what a brilliant, brilliant performance from Nuno and Tottenham to finish fifth. Superb. So you make an interesting point there, but I think it comes down to perception. And I think the Harry Kane saga can in a weird way help Tottenham and the players and the staff that are left. They're reliant on players who I, I don't think are quite consistent enough to be uh, to be to take them into that that kind of talk conversation about the top four. Eric Eric Dyer was good yesterday. Sanchez was good, but these guys have also been pretty poor at times at centre half. Christian Christian Romero, how he fares is going to be big for them as well. And and as it, basically the point is, there's only so much the coach can do by setting them up to be. You know, resolute like that, and Jose Mourinho tried to do it, and he failed. When they were, when they were asked to defend for long periods of, the, of games, they didn't do it successfully. So that's that would still be my question mark about about this Tottenham team. Yes, they've got quality players. Yes, Nuno's a good coach. You will you will have them resolute and disciplined, and they've got threats on the break. I still I think beyond the top six is is a big ask for them this season. I was impressed by Tottenham Hotspur yesterday. They did surprise me. I thought Manchester City would win. I have to say someone who didn't really impress me, the British record signing, £100 million, Jack Grealish. Wow. He does not fit their style whatsoever, does he? I mean, he's gone, he's gone early. He's he gone did. early. Well, 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 I'm not saying he's going to be a flop. Take it easy. <laughs> In this particular 90 minutes, it showed that he was the new boy at the club. You know, it showed that he had been working with the manager for the least amount of time. 
you know, he was at certain times, you know, get into the final third, he checked back, drop his shoulder, beat a player, but he was going back towards his own halfway line while the rest of his teammates poured forward. You know, there were, he held onto the ball slightly too long is probably the way that I would perceive it. But I'm sure that, that Pep Guardiola will get that out of his system and he will become a better player in time. But I actually think Guardiola saved him by not substituting him. You know, he took off Raheem Sterling before him and it was like, well, Grealish is pretty central to how you're playing at the moment and you're not playing that well. And the others know your style better than he does. So why were we, we pinning it all? And actually towards the end of the game, he saw how frustrated Jack Grealish was. I mean, it wasn't his day, but there is room for improvement. Absolutely. I think it was a really interesting transfer in the sense of a player who was so talismanic for one team at Aston Villa. Everything went through him. The ball always went to him. To go to a team where you've got so many talisman, ta- talismanic players, so many creative players, it's going to be fascinating into how he fits into that system. And it will take time. It will take time with Pep Guardiola on the training training ground. In the same way as Raheem Sterling, in the same way as Guardiola changed and improved Raheem Sterling. But, you know, if you were to, to compare it to Bruno Fernandes at Manchester United, Manchester United were crying out for a Bruno Fernandes. And so he goes into that team and immediately looks brilliant because Manchester United absolutely needed a Bruno Fernandes. Manchester City don't really need a Jack Grealish, but they've signed him anyway. Uh, but, and therefore, you don't immediately drop into that team and look brilliant. And also, as we've discussed, Tottenham were set up to play defensively. I think it'll take a, a long time. I think Jack Grealish will be a success under Pep Guardiola. Yeah, I'm not really having that. I thought he was probably the most dangerous player. Uh, yes, it, it, it's sort of slightly jarring see, seeing him run with the ball, carry it, you know, drawing fouls, things that we've seen him do for Villa when he was the player that everything went through. But he was still, that's, he was still, still set his biggest threat, I thought. Um, I, you know, Pep, Pep will try and change things. I'm sure he will. I'm sure he'll try and get him to play quicker. But if you can think of him, him and De Bruyne and those two kind of, as I say, those two positions where... City are the, the most dangerous, those little inside channels and, you know, one behind them. That is, that is mouth-watering stuff. I, I, I absolutely think Grealish can thrive in this team and I don't think he has to change that much. I don't think he's, I, I don't think he's going to be the wide player. I, I think he's going to be one of the players who's like a playmaker, like De Bruyne, and I think he will thrive. I agree, but he played like a wide player for me. That when I say he held on to the ball too much, he didn't play like a Manchester City central midfielder, which was to keep the ball moving as much as possible and to help work space for those wide players. I think he played like he was the one out on the touchline. Obviously, he started centrally. But that's where, that's the difficulty, isn't it, between your two points there? Because for Villa, he, he was moved out wide in order to get himself one-on-one with fullbacks quite a lot, get him a little bit more space. But as, as we discussed during the European Championships for England, and as Greg is saying, you know, City have got players with pace out wide and you probably will maybe see him in a central area linking up with De Bruyne which as Gregor says is a terrifying prospect for the opposition but that transition will take a little bit of time um, but I, I I would be uh, fairly confident that by Christmas we'll be seeing a fairly terrifying Manchester City going forward I'd have thought City's biggest problem yesterday I thought was that the spent large parts of the game walking with the football at the, someone's, someone's feet you know it, mm. They just looked like they looked like it. They hadn't had any preparation. They looked like they'd had a long summer. They looked like it's going to take them a few weeks to get into the swing of things, and that ultimately proved to be the case. I also thought one of City's main problems was a lack of a, a genuine goal scorer, centre forward. I wonder. I wonder if we can think of anyone to solve that crisis for them. Uh, as I mentioned, no Harry Kane in the Tottenham squad whatsoever. Make of that what you will. He did only return to training on Friday, and I know we've spoken about it before. I want this to be resolved as soon as possible, just so we don't have to talk about it, to be frank. Do we see on the horizon any way that Harry Kane's situation plays out one way or the other? I really hope so. As you say, it'd be good for both parties, I think, for Kane and for Tottenham. I don't see any... Obviously, Tottenham want and deserve a massive fee for someone as talented as Harry Kane. I don't think Kane and his team have played it that well in terms of the tactics, in terms of his position within the club. When you think of other transfers of players that have moved on, having been cult legends, heroes, whatever you want to say. But I would hope that both sides can get it resolved because if they if they can and Tottenham can make some good money off him and bring in some players 
and Kane can move on and then we can see if he is really the world-class superstar striker who can win Champions League and Premier Leagues and things like that. I really hope so. I really hope it doesn't come down to the final day of the transfer window and it's haggling over add-ons and sell-on clauses and all that kind of stuff. It probably will. I really hope it doesn't. City player by the end of the week? No, I think I'll probably go down to the wire as well. I think that's the way that Tottenham get the best fee. Probably that's the only way it's going to happen. I'd be surprised if it happens and like before then it's going to be a bit of a saga for the next couple of weeks, I think. And we'll see exactly where he ends up, but I hope this Kane situation is resolved. And you can hear Henry Winter's views on it a little bit later on. The chief football writer has been talking to me about Harry Kane. That's coming up after our midway break. But up next, let's talk about Manchester United because they had a much more positive start to the season than their rivals City. And a lot of fun, frankly, in front of their fans at Old Trafford. Having beaten Leeds 6-2 last season at home, it was 5-1 this time around. A hat-trick for Bruno Fernandes, four assists for Paul Pogba. And dare I say, a Ferguson-esque performance from the manager, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer, unbelievable. What? Why are you shaking your heads? Anyway, look, I, I just so want to talk. hard, so early. Jack Grealish is rubbish. <laughs> Oli Gunnar Solskjaer is Sir Alex Ferguson. <laughs> I love it. I've got so much time for it, Hugh. You've gone punchy. I've really, really strong front no, foot. No, no, no. I'm here for it. It was end-to-end. It was free-flowing. It was the approach that you would expect from an old-school Manchester United team. Go at them. When you they're know. playing Leeds. They're playing Leeds. This is the case last season. Manchester United's problem will be when they come up against Watford or Spurs if they want to sit back and play like they did against Man United. That's sorry, I can say that's going to be their biggest challenge. Look, uh, that's not to put a dampener on it. This was there was some pretty impressive play, particularly Pogba. I think there were moments that you know, obviously, he got four assists the first time. I think anyone's done that in the Premier League. And I think the one for Greenwood was the one that made me think this is like Euros Pogba. Because how many times did we see in the Euros when he was playing from that slightly deeper role, those perfectly weighted passes through balls, you know, it's got the vision and the kind of technique to, to, to pull that off. And Greenwood could be a big season for Greenwood, I think, you know. He, that was a brilliant finish the way he went through and just arrowed it into the bottom corner. So, And Fernandez just picking off where, <laughs> where he left off is so ruthless, incredible. So, you know, look, that's before Sancho, uh, Jane Sancho comes in. That's before Varane comes in at the back four. A lot to be positive about for Manchester United, but at the same time, Leeds were like almost the perfect opening day opposition for them. They come, they're wide open, they didn't have Calvin Phillips, and the chances flowed. I can't believe then that Leeds had this approach, Tom, because, you know, they got a stark warning about playing against Manchester United in this way. Were you surprised that Marcelo Bielsa didn't change or are we to expect him to be the same week in, week out? I don't think, I think it's a little bit, uh, a little bit too simplified to say that Leeds are the same all the time. They've, they showed last season that they can adapt. One game I remember in particular was home to Burnley where they did adapt the style of play to combat the way that Burnley were going to attack. I think that leads an, another team in the way in a similar in a similar sense to Manchester City, but for very different reasons, will be a team that might struggle for the opening weeks of the season when football's had a busy summer. Phillips is a massive miss for them because he was only half fit, and obviously we know how fit Bielsa demands his players to be. I think they'll be fine post post September international break and things like that. So yeah, I, w- I wouldn't worry too much. Obviously, for a Leeds fan, they're probably going to get a couple of games like that this season where. They are just quite open. But at the same time, they created chances against Manchester United. There were a few times when they the press worked, they pinched the ball back and they attacked and they, they just weren't that um, uh, composed in front of goal. So I, I wouldn't, again, let's not get carried away. It's my catchphrase of the, my catchphrase of the podcast. I'm using it again. <laughs> let's not get carried away. So my next question then, brought nicely to it by Tom, are Manchester United realistic title winners? Now that we've seen how good they can play, Pogba of France seems to have come back to to Manchester. Unbelievable play from start to finish, really. They've got to be. Do you honestly think their title, as a fan, just one word, do you think they can win the title as a fan? Yes or no? Well, what I was teeing this up to to really happen is for you to say, no, they're not. They're missing something, in particular, a holding midfielder and a centre forward. And I was then going to say, well, what do you know? Maybe Harry Kane will come to Manchester United. And in particular, a player from Leeds United in holding midfield, who I really admire, Calvin Phillips, could come to Manchester United. I know it's a Leeds boy to Manchester, et cetera, et cetera. But 
you know, those are two key positions for Manchester United, although they're, they're very good. And even Fred got on the score sheet. I think they're almost there, a couple of players away from being realistic title winners. That's definitely, I'm going to remind you of that when you give me the option of a one-word answer, yes or no, that I'm allowed to cheat and give a, give a <laughs> long-winded. But it's interesting you pick out the defensive midfield role because Varane, great signing. I think he'll improve Manchester United. Defensively, Sancho, incredible talent. But I still don't understand how Ole Gunnar Solskjaer thinks Fred and McTominay are the answer as holding midfielders. They they are fascinating to me because Alan Shearer is picking them out on match of the day as being a real positive for United. And quite often they both get a lot of praise. But to me, they are they're the kind of the crux of the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer team, in a sense, in that they're very good. They're very hardworking. They're only ever going to be eight out of 10, even on their best, best day. And it's in those games where it's very tight. And when Fernandez is marked out of the game, and Pogba's marked out of the game, and maybe Greenwood, Rashford, Cavani aren't taking the chances, and you need your then defensive midfielder to step forward with the ball and pick a pass, you turn around and go, these guys aren't quite it. Or in those big tight games where they're playing against attacking midfielders who have got the run on them. It interests me that Solskjaer seems happy with them as because they, sh- they strike of 8 out of 10, second in the league, maybe a cup final, but losing the cup final. Like that's Fred and McTominay. And that to me is still where Manchester United are. But, you know, let's not, let's not get carried away. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, one, one of those guys could be Pogba. If they sign someone who's really elite level, more of a defensive minded midfielder, it, there's no one, to, no one to partner Pogba in midfield there. That would probably take them to sign, you know, to spend 100 million on Declan Rice, wouldn't it? Which they're not going to, they, they can't or won't. So that's the first thing I would say about Manchester United midfield. The second thing is, I think McTominay has grown in stature enormously. I think he's dynamic, he's powerful. Yes, he's Scottish, I see smiling there. <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, he, 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 can, he can drive forward as well. He can make things happen. Um, I'm not saying he is, as I said already, I don't think McTominay and Pogba is the sitting two as the right makeup. So he is, he is lacking something there. But that is Manchester United's weakest point still. And look, Varane's an upgrade on, on Lindelof that has the potential of being a strong Manchester United defensive pairing. Um, still some question marks about Wan-Bissaka right back. So there are little... And then as a centre forward, yes, this could be a huge season for Greenwood. He's somehow still a teenager, but you see him growing in stature all the time. Uh, you know, He's a natural goal scorer. And Cavani if he's fit, is also another huge asset. But that's another area where you think if Manchester United had, had gone big there, then yes, they're a challenger. That's before you, start, you talk about Solskjaer and who's competing against in the dugout. We've got Tuchel, Klopp and Guardiola and, and he's, I've said many times before, he's not on that level. So there are still little question marks that for me, the answer to your question, Hugh, in even more long-winded way than you did, means that Man United aren't title challengers. That's sad. Sad for me to take on board <laughs> after the, just one game of the season. But I can see that Tom's allowing you to take a lot from, from that first game, you know, in the negative sense, even though we're not allowed to do so in a positive sense. Tom Clark, thank you very much. Just want to keep you level, Hugh. That's all. I don't want, I don't want no. to see you hurt come, okay. come October when you lose to, you know, Patrick Vieira's Crystal Palace 2-0 two, two or something like that. And I, I, I just, you know, you know we're, we're good mates. I don't want to see you hurt like that. It's, it's tough for me to see. I think they could narrow the gap. They've narrowed the gap in the last couple of years and I think they could narrow it further, which might make them, like last season, there was a little spell where you thought, oh, you know, they went top briefly, I think, there's a chance. And then they faded. If they can keep that that kind of, <laughs> you know, on the coattails for a little bit longer, that's progression. They have to, have to add again. They have to fill those holes we've spoken about again. And so, look, there's progress, but let's see let's see when they're playing a team who are not as open as Leeds United there was one thing that returned at Manchester United this weekend which I think we definitely need to see more of not just 5-1 wins of course Raphael Varane was unveiled to the masses just before kickoff a full Old Trafford he walked on with his R Varane 19 shirt in his Hugo Boss suit taking selfies and giving Rio Ferdinand hugs and it just set the tone ahead of the kickoff Joe Willock not quite the same because, of course, he was at Newcastle last year and it was announced already, but he came out onto the pitch at St. James's Park. And again, 
you know, a, a huge applause and cheering for a brand new signing. You know, I want to see this happen every weekend from here on out. Save the announcements until five minutes before kickoff. Get the stadium announcer to announce it first time to the home fans. That's the way it should be. Absolutely. I'd love it if Lincoln could announce a World Cup winner just before kickoff. That'd be brilliant. <laughs> That'd be amazing. Here he is, Killian Mbappe. Sinsel Bank, make some noise. That'd be <laughs> superb. Um, no, you're right. It was it was nice and old school to be the grumpy old man again. I was following uh, following that part of the game uh, on social media, and the Manchester United uh, Twitter account was kind of sealed with a selfie or something like that, and it was a picture of Varane on the pitch. So you know, to be to be the grumpy old man. It's, I think social media will still be king, I'm afraid, Hugh, when it comes to player announcements. But it was nice to see. Nice and old school, I agree. Gregor, what was your uh, favourite announcement as a player, you know, of all the clubs that you've played for? What, <laughs> what did they do? What did they, what did they do to roll out the red carpet? The ones where I was in boot. <laughs> <laughs> Lifetime supply of fish and chips when you signed for Grimsby or something like that? Come on, there must have well, been I wish. something. I wish. <laughs> did you have a special sponsor at any of your clubs? You know, certain players get sponsored by a strange businesses yeah yeah there were some pretty obscure businesses i mean don't try and ask me to name them but there was even some <laughs> you know in the program you've got like a shirt sponsor a short sponsor and a sock sponsor so someone actually sponsored my socks at certain clubs which you know i take my hat off to them <laughs> if gregor robertson sock sponsor is listening please get in touch we'd love to hear from you <laughs> it's some sort of athlete foot spray or something like that i'm sure or dodgyankles.com or something like yeah that. A surgeon. Plenty more to come on the game podcast, not just uh, about Gregor's ankles. Uh, we'll hear from Henry Winter next, his views on the weekend's action and the three big results, including the game at the Brentford Community Stadium. We'll talk about Arsenal's need for a root and branch change a little bit later on after their defeat at Brentford, as well as looking at all the other results in the Premier League, top to bottom as well. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from, and make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times across all of your devices. If you sign up today, you will get yourself one month free. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get yourself started. Now on the game podcast, it's time to speak to the Times chief football writer, Henry Winter, about the weekend's action. Hello, Henry. How are you? I'm very good. What did you make of the first weekend of the Premier League? Fans were back. That's the most important thing. It was a victory. You know, just turning up at uh, uh, the Brentford Community Stadium, which is which is fa- fabulous. I mean, it's a feat of engineering, a feat of architecture, a feat of amazing planning to actually squeeze it into a very tight space almost on the uh, the, uh, the London-bound platform at, at Kewbridge Station. And just to sort of walk in there before kickoff on Friday night and just the buzz around the place, I mean, no pun intended, um, with the Brentford fans absolutely up for this after 74 years. And, and then because of the pandemic, because of what everyone's been through, because everyone's craving some light at the end of the tunnel, and football's such a sort of bellwether often for, uh, for, for, for issues in society. And it was just... It was just there was an uplifting feeling. Everyone was was together. The masks were were, were mainly off. There were what sixteen, seventeen thousand people in there. The noise was huge. People were catching up. People were sort of, you know, lamenting, you know, mourning those who, who didn't make it through the, the the pandemic. All all of these issues, all of the sort of the ups and downs of of life, were just sort of embodied. And then you just had a football match like that, which set the tone. I think for the weekend and, and possibly with the season with a promoted club, well-organized, well-backed, well-managed by Thomas Frank, standing up to a club in Arsenal that had been drifting for the last 10 years. And it was uh, probably the uh, probably about the 200th wake-up call that I've covered for Arsenal <laughs> over the last decade. And there'll probably be more to come unless they get going. We'll go in a bit more depth with Arsenal in a moment. But as we've just been discussing at Manchester United on the podcast, let's start at Old Trafford, that 5-1 win over Leeds. Are you, Henry, ready to say United are back? Culturally and emotionally, they were back the moment Solskjaer returned. There were tensions within the building, the training ground particularly, and Oli, because of his personality, because of the way he's respected at the club, because he doesn't really have an ego, because he puts Manchester United first and himself second. I just think that that was a a, a key change. 
that there are issues with him tactically. He's not a Tuchel, he's not a Klopp, he's not a Guardiola, but he is a fabulous man manager and he's the right man at the right time for Manchester United. So in terms of, he's almost growing into the job. He's becoming more decisive. You can see what he's doing with the squad in terms of trimming it, in terms of strengthening it, in terms of going for quality. I thought it was a masterstroke bringing on Varane before kickoff because it was already at fever pitch with Leeds, obviously, in town. And then to have Varane there, you know, was it four Champions Leagues? You know, you just see him strolling around there. You just think, wow, you know, we've got a good team. And when you've got Varane in for Lindelof playing alongside Maguire, that is going to be huge. And then Jaden Sancho coming on in the second half. Paul Pogba, I mean, four assists, one of the passes, well, I mean, you have to go some way into this season to see a pass as good as that, the one that he just sort of faded in behind Pascal Stroik for, for Mason Greenwood to, to run on to. And it was interesting. I wasn't at the game, but it was interesting reading Paul Hurst, who, who was at the game um, in the Times today, the game, just focusing on Greenwood and what he's done, how he's developed. You know, we forget he's 19. And, you know, he could be Manchester United and England centre forward for, for, for 10 years. He's such a talent. So to see him playing like that and obviously Bruno Fernandes with his, his runs and the link up with Pogba, it was very exciting to, I, mean, I was just sitting on the sofa going, this is the Manchester United of old. This is what you want. Front foot, full of belief, no fear, attack, attack, attack. As one of the back pages of the papers said the day afterwards, yes, attack, attack, attack. Interesting you say Mason Greenwood, though, could be England's uh, centre forward for the next 10 years. He was out there showing his stuff. No Harry Kane, who currently has that position with the national squad, of course, at the game at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium as Spurs really shocked the nation by beating the defending champions, Manchester City. Were you surprised by their performance? I almost woke up this morning with, are you watching Harry Kane reverberating in my head? Because it was the sound of the game. The fans were seeing it during the game. The fans were seeing it coming out of the game, walking up the Tottenham High Road, punching the air with delight. Uh, a slight reflection on Pep Guardiola's comments a, a couple of years ago, describing Tottenham as the Harry Kane team. I don't think he was necessarily being derogatory of the other players in it, but you know, Players are, can be sensitive and they just wanted to prove a point that they're not simply about one player. And also that Nuno, I'm a huge Nuno fan. I just think he is, he was underrated with what he did at Wolves because Wolves aren't necessarily so prominent on the, on the media landscape, but he's a good manager. And I think he's gone in there and I think he's just, he's organized them. They look fitter to me. You look at those players, those Tottenham players, they were just, you know, that was quite a punishing um, tactics that they had to implement, absorbing all the pressure and then absolutely flying forward on the break. And they caught City out. I mean, it was fantastic. You know, Morris uh, flick to uh, Bergwijn who went through and then really poor defending by Nathan Aki, Ruben Diaz. Benjamin Mendy shouldn't be near Manchester City's squad, let alone side anyway. Uh, and then uh, for, for Son to score. So it was, uh, I mean, I, I was surprised. I thought City would be better prepared, have a bit more hunger. But what it highlighted as the Spurs fans were, were singing, as the, the City fans were also implying, was how much they need Harry Kane. Ha Kane's not handling this well, Hugh. You know, there's a way to leave an employer, a club, and it's through the front door, not through the fire exit. It's going out and just sort of saying goodbye to people, looking in my, looking them in the eye, shaking their hands. You know, Hugh, we've all worked in different places. Obviously, it's not as high profile as Harry Kane, but simple principles apply that you show respect, particularly when you've got a three-year contract as, as Harry Kane still has. You show respect to Nuno. You show respect to your teammates. You show respect to, to the board and the people who've nurtured you. And you particularly show respect to the Tottenham Hotspur fans. I know he put a statement out, but it was too late. He should have come back earlier. I just don't understand this. Okay, he needed a break. But if you look at the players, the 11 players who started the European Championship final for England, five of them started for their clubs at the weekend, uh, or six, including Pickford, five outfield and Pickford. And then four uh, were on the bench. I think Kieran Trippier came on in the second half for Atletico Madrid. And Harry Kane was, was nowhere to be seen. Are oh, you watching Harry Kane? He's England captain. He's a role model. He, honestly, his standards have to be better. 
even at the very least, listen, he wants to move, move. I think people who know Harry Kane know it's about the prizes, it's about the glory, it's about the Champions League. It's not simply about money for Harry Kane. He's not really like that. He's not. He's greedy for trophies, not for money. But you do things with a bit of class. You're, you're England captain. Show some respect to the people around. Give a little clarity. If he came out and said, listen, it's about the Champions League. I've done well at Tottenham Hotspur. Obviously, they would be a bit hurt because he feels he's, he's, he's upgrading, although it didn't look like it on yesterday's performance. Um, but he clearly is because he's going to work with Pep Guardiola and, and everything that Manchester City have got, the players they have around him, he'll score a hat full of goals. But, you know, just do it with a bit of class, a bit of clarity, a bit better communication and a bit better timing. He should have been back at Tottenham earlier. Uh, let me take you back to Friday night then. That Brentford game, their first in the top flight in 74 years. They became the 50th team to appear uh, in the Premier League. What an evening for Brentford and Thomas Frank, their manager, and all of their fans inside the Brentford Community Stadium. However, it was dire from Arsenal and almost to be expected. I think most football fans thought Brentford could get a result and that is a, a sad indictment over Mikel Arteta's tenure. And it's not simply Mikel Arteta. I mean, everyone's focused on him and social media is sort of getting in a huff and getting all sort of hashtag Arteta out. Anyone who has watched Arsenal even from afar, will know that the problems predate Mikel Arteta. They run far deeper than a young coach trying to impose his philosophy. This is a club that's been in drift for 10 years. This is a club that's got a distant owner in Stan Kroenke, silent Stan, who very rarely deigns to communicate with, uh, with supporters, who has allowed the club to drift. And he's allowed the recruitment is, is just Poor. I mean, Edu is getting a lot of the, uh, the the flack, but you can see he's trying to sort of tighten the recruitment. But some of the signings, I mean, even the sort of a year, two years ago, you know, what what are Arsenal doing? They're allowing players to, uh, to to run down contracts as well. So it's it's a complete mess. So look, Mikel Arteta will be the lightning rod for all the fans' grief. And you know, just walking out of the the stadium the other night and just listening to the Arsenal fans. You know, they were they were enraged by that performance, but they were also, they knew that this was a chronicle of a death foretold. They knew that this has been building. This has been coming the last or two, three years of the Wenger era and then going into Emirate. It's just been problem after problem. They've not addressed the recruitment. They've not addressed the sliding culture of Arsenal. Arsenal used to stand for the Hillwoods, the Marble Halls, for a certain element of doing things the right way. And now if you talk to fans, some of them who are paying four or five grand for a season ticket, they are saying we are not being treated properly like they were a year before, whether it's cost cutting, whether it's cronkier uh, wanting to sweat the asset, whatever it is, there's a huge general problem at Arsenal and it's cultural. And that cultural thing, whether it's the lack of leadership from the top to the dressing room and clearly out onto the pitch. Unfortunately, understand Cronkier, he's made Arsenal about money. And that, I think, has permeated too many parts of the dressing room. If you looked at that Arsenal performance the other night, how many of those players would you really feel confident about representing the club going into the future, representing the Arsenal the right way? Kieran Tierney, definitely. He's an absolute fighter. He is you know, the right man in a long tradition of outstanding Arsenal left-backs going back to the 30s. Also, Emil Smethrow, homegrown, absolutely put in, put to shame some of the the uh, you know the, the, the fancy luxury players that, that that Arsenal also have. Emil Smithrow just gave everything for the shirt. So did Kieran Tierney, but too few others did. My thanks to Henry for joining us once again. Let's go back to Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark on Arsenal in particular before we come to Brentford's great performance because it was really interesting to hear what Henry had to say about a cultural issue at Arsenal and that Stan Kroenke has made it just about money. Strong views. Uh, Gregor, what do you think? I don't know if he's made it just about money. I think he's just proven himself not to be a good owner of a football club. <laughs> and that's his pretty basic thing to say, but you still there still seems to be very little coherence in their in their recruitment strategy and in their appointments. You know, still the jury's very much out on, on Edu as you know in his role and and 
you know, there's been so much churn in the boardroom. It's just, it still just feels to me like a very unsettled football club and pretty directionless. Arteta has tried to take all of that on his shoulders, I think, and it's very difficult for a for a manager to do that as a club the size of Arsenal. I don't think he's he's particularly well supported around them. And you know, there might be question marks about Arteta as a as a coach and the way he sets his team up, the way he's asking them to to play out from the back when I would suggest that, you know, against a team like Brentford to press very, very well. And I would question whether his defenders are good enough to do it, some of them. Uh Mari in particular. Um so you know there are question marks across the board, but I think Arsenal Yes, yes, there's a culture issue, a hundred percent. But that's that stems back. That goes back a long, long way. Change the the move away from from Highbury, uh, Arsene Wenger's kind of final years where he had very little money to spend, and it was just seen as getting the top four, as, as Henry said, to to fill the coffers was seen as success. It was kind of the club just became, you know, mediocrity became acceptable. Really, mediocrity for Arsenal. And I think that's very hard to shake, and I think it will still take a long time for it to be shaken. I'm not sure if it ever will be shaken with Kroenke at the helm. I find it a little bit difficult to get too bogged down into the whole cultural Arsenal's grand big problems when Brentford are throwing the ball into the box and you've got defence letting the ball bounce. I mean, like, we don't even need to go to Gregor as a player who played in the Football League. Like, anyone who's played football, my, my coach at school used to say, don't let the ball bounce. Like, it, I mean, it was one of the most basic and imba- I was watching it with my dad on the Friday night before we went to Lincoln. And I said, if we'd conceded that goal when we were in the conference, the entire crowd would have been absolutely furious. And what was fascinating was that Thomas Frank then came out and said, we knew we'd be able to do that. We actually worked on throws into the box, putting balls into the box, putting crosses into the box because we thought we'd win that battle. That's such a simple thing for a top-level team, not even in the Premier League, that that can be picked out and so nakedly obvious an area for your opposition to attack and for it to work so simply and so easily. I don't know. I struggle to get into all the kind of big big dialogue and big debate about the, the big issues at Arsenal, of which there are many. I'm starting to think this might be yeah, there's so much, good, so much wrong, so much wrong on the pitch, and the players just. Emil Smith-Rowe was one of the best players on the pitch for Arsenal. The guy's wearing the number ten for Arsenal. A couple of years ago, he couldn't get in Huddersfield's team as they were battling relegation in the Championship. He's a talented lad. I think he's a good player, but that's that. You know, that says it all when you watch Arsenal on the pitch. There are huge issues, as you say, and as Gregor points out, but on the pitch, the team a little bit frightening, really, for the opening day of the season. I just think both both things can be true, though. Like, Tom's right. There's a lot of lot of issues on the field, a lot of issues. But I think that, that always stems from the top. Who they employ to, to sign the players, who they employ as a head coach. Um no, that, that has not worked well for, for many years now. And this is the result. There's another question mark about you talk about culture in uh, I've said this before and you, you can be labelled a dinosaur for it, but Arsenal don't have any leaders on the pitch and that's still true. He spent fifty million pound on Ben White, and I think he's a very, 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 very good player, and he will be a good signing for Arsenal. But is he is he a leader? And that's what Arsenal have been crying out for for so long at the back. And Jack has improved greatly. It seems like he's going to hang around, but I still wouldn't hang my hat on him as being a consistent, reliable leader for for a club like Arsenal throughout a Premier League season. This is where they are, and you know, Aubameyang. This is the next guy in line, and it seems to be also very intriguing to see him see, see Arteta field the question about where Aubameyang and Lacazette were, and saying they say they're ill. That's all I can say. I mean, that, that sounded to me like there was some little issue there as well. So it's just not a happy place. I don't necessarily know whether it's Mikel Arteta because it's such a it's such a tough job <laughs> to be Arsenal coach at the minute. But let's not get carried away. Let's give him. Let's give him four games. The biggest question mark about Arteta is whether, and the biggest kind of fear I think Arsenal fans should have is whether he really is engaging the players. There's a question mark about that actually, which is which is a big worry. You know, we, we could we could be certain, pretty certain, that he's going to be a talented coach, and we've seen flashes of him having this, that kind of steely stare in his eyes and saying, you know, trying to be a strong, strong disciplinarian. And some of a big part of you thinks 
Arsenal needed that. And if he's backed enough, you know, he's, he's shipped out some players, I'm sure there'll be more he wants to get rid of, then it might work. But in the meantime, he's got to engage the players he has at his disposal. And there's a question mark about whether he is doing so. Thomas Frank, though, in the opposition dugout, I think his side were what we expected them to be. You know, they play very good football and they had a plan. Most importantly, Mikel Arteta, take note, they had a plan. Gregor, what did you make of Brentford's big day? Magnificent. They were a breath of fresh air in every sense. Even, you know, the, I was even thought that watching the interviews post-match, you know, with Frank and, and Norgard, you know, he was having a laugh with, with the guys on the touchline and just really open and honest. That's what the club is like. They're, they are, they're really candid about everything, about about the way that they operate, about the their their kind of beliefs and their their culture and everything about about the football club, which has taken them from League Two 12 years ago to the Premier League. I mean, I I, I played against Brentford many times at Griffin Park when they had Mad Dog Martin Allen in the in the dugout, and to see the turnaround in this club, it's remarkable. So, putting all that to one side, the the performance as well was just was just superb. But as you say, it was clear had a clear plan. They were going to press and harry and hound Arsenal and make it really difficult for them. And although Ivan Tony didn't you know didn't get his goal and I'm sure the goals will come for him this season, he was such a handful for Ben White and for, for Mari. Holding play up, winning headers, brilliant performance, brilliant kind of focal point for the team throughout the game. Um I thought they were just outstanding. So Brentford have got a chance this season of because they because they have that kind of spirit behind them at home, the new stadium, the fact that this is the first time in seventy four years they're in the Premier League. You couple that with their the intelligence of their approach and the way that I think they're quite flexible too. They're playing a back three here. That only really happened towards the back end of last season. They really are a team who play four at the back and they have a front three. And I think they will change up depending on their opponent. And they can play like this. They showed a kind of different side to them. In the championship, they were the team who dominated possession. They were always in the kind of top five teams for 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 having the you know possession on the ball. Against Arsenal, they, they were happy to see possession when when you know at, at times of the game and have ta- a real target to press. So as I say, I think that flexibility will, will bode well for them and I think they're going to be a really, really intriguing addition to the Premier League. The other thing on Brentford as well is Mbwemo was superb, I thought. And he is a player that kind of embodies what Gregor was saying about them being flexible in that he's kind of forward, he's played wide, he's played off Tony. He was equally as much of a handful as Ivan Tony. I thought he was fantastic. I mean, look, again, let's not get carried away. Sorry to do it again. There will be a couple of games this season where they'll go away and it won't, they won't quite get it right. It happened in the championship occasionally. They are prone to some slightly mad defending at times where yeah, they'll attack it. and they'll forget to leave anyone back. Someone will make a mistake. There will be times when they'll be 3-0 down at halftime away from home, potentially. But for neutrals, they'll be great fun. We always love it when a new team come into the Premier League um, as neutrals to, to watch and follow their story. They'll, they'll be they'll be great value in that sense, and they fully deserve their win. They'll, they'll be they'll be brilliant at, the, at home, that's for sure. Right, let's uh, move on to our recap of all the other games in the Premier League this uh, this weekend. Just so we can touch on, I think every team in the Premier League. I'll start with the game at Vicarage Road, Watford three, Aston Villa two, because we expected so much from Aston Villa. This is a bit of a surprise for most people. Uh, Tom, what did you make of it? Really interesting. Two two teams that I think are going to be fascinating. As you say, the post-Jack Grealish era at Villa, it's going to be really interesting to see how they cope. I think they've made some good signings. I think Buendia is a talented player. Hopefully won't be pressured into being Jack Grealish. He can just be his own man, as they always say. I think Ings is obviously a good signing. Um, the best thing that Aston Villa did actually this weekend was the fact that their goalkeeper and back four all had the numbers one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> which was my, which in modern football is although not basic, for long when when not Matt for long, Matt Target, Matt Target <laughs> ruined it, yeah, and went off at half time. But that, that was one of the best things they did. But obviously, we we gave a chunk of time to Brentford, as a lot of um, media outlets have done this season so far, because they're the new guys, and Watford are almost this. They're almost West Bromwich, aren't they? In the kind of boing boing up and down sense, I think they can benefit from that. They've got some really talented players. Um, I think Saar's going to be really, really good for them this season out wide. Obviously been linked with Manchester United a few times in his career already. I, th- I think I think Watford could benefit from a lack of focus on them and all the attention being on Brentford as the newcomers. Um, but yeah, I, I thought from, from the bits that I saw of the game, 
I think Watford deserve to win and it'll be interesting to see how Villa cope. Two things about Watford. The first is they had the best defence in the Championship last season. I think they only conceded 30 goals. Another the other thing I thought was really interesting was Cucho Hernandez making his debut for the club he signed for. He's only 22. He signed for them in 2017. And he's been out on loan three times. And apparently he's had a brilliant pre-season. And, you know, that was he come off the bench, dropped inside, curled an absolute beauty in at the far corner. They're expecting him to make an impact this season. And if he can keep Sar, Emmanuel Dennis got a debut goal as well. He's a bit of a rough diamond. I saw here, he's had a bit of a kind of... I think he was at Bruges and Cologne last season, didn't do much. Um, but he got his debut goal. And, you know, they're... There's certainly certainly an unexpected start, an unexpected positive start for for Watford. Slightly disappointed that Cucho uh, didn't run past Mike Dean and give him a high five for the goal because Dean played a brilliant advantage. There was about three fouls and he did a classic Mike Dean elaborate advantage to let the play continue. Um, so slightly disappointed that he didn't involve Dino in the celebrations. But yeah, fantastic goal. To Goodison Park, where Everton came from behind to beat Southampton 3-1. I think there were positive elements for both teams in this despite the the defeat for Southampton, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. Adam Armstrong, very talented player, deserves his chance in the Premier League. I think good to see Southampton dropping down the levels to replace Danny Ings. Again, I'm not saying he is Danny Ings, but he took his goal really well. I think he's the classic handful type striker that can play quite well in the system where they play two up top with forward two press. Delighted to see my mate Jordan Pickford get a win. Obviously, be backing him <laughs> to the hill all season. Never going to, not going to leave him behind. You named your fancy team after him. <laughs> I have, yeah, no problem, FC. Um, so, and he's he's in the team, uh, and I'll, I'll probably keep him all the way through as well. Uh, just briefly on Everton, we talked at the end of last season, and we talked quite a lot about I have certainly about them not making sense as a squad, as a team. It was really interesting to see this. You know, they've obviously signed Andros Townsend, who did an interview with Paul Joyce that we published last week where he said, you know, I no offense if Everton fans aren't impressed or inspired by me signing for them. We've also got Damari Gray. Watching the highlights of, and the, of the game and seeing that setup, I was like, yeah, this makes sense. You've got Dominic Calvert-Lewin. You've got two quick guys out wide who can put balls into the box. You've got Richarlison to play behind him. You've got two solid defensive midfielders. Yeah, this makes sense. You've not got three number 10s running all over the place and congesting the center of the pitch with no overlaps or no players out wide. Finally, this makes sense. Paul Joyce had a few good stats about that in his, in his piece today. Was, I think they put 18 crosses in from open play in the average 12 last season and Calvert-Lewin yeah. scored 12 headers since the start of last season, which is more than any other player in the Premier League. That's their plan this season. Yeah. It could be could be quite fun. And there were two more that were good on a kind of another side, the other side of it, which is kind of that everyone have been accused of having a kind of soft underbelly. This is the first time they've won a top flight game in which they've trailed at half-time since September 2015. That's remarkable. Um, on the flip side, I'm going I'm full of the stats here today. Southampton, <laughs> since since uh, Hasenhutl took over in December 2018, they've lost 60 points from winning positions in top flight, which is, again, the worst in the Premier League. So I think that kind of, that's a po- massive positive for Everton in terms of having a, showing a bit of metal, uh, particularly you know the atmosphere with Benitez at, Goodison Park looked, looked rocking as well. Um, and on the flip side, Southampton, if they, if they do that this season, they're, they're down. Right, let's whiz through some of the other games then. Burnley 1, Brighton 2 at Turf Moor. 11 straight defeats at home in the Premier League for Sean Dyche's Burnley. Is this their year, Tom, going down? I hope not, because they provided my moment of the weekend. That James Tarkovsky goal was just brilliantly Burnley, <laughs> but also brilliantly symbolic of this new VAR. I mean, that was clearly a foul, wasn't it? No, it wasn't. Shoved... No, no, it was come not on. clearly a foul. It was not clearly oh. a foul. I mean, I, I, I love Burnley. Way. I love James James Tarkovsky goes in with exact, exactly the same force, and maybe he's being marked by a six-foot-two centre-half. Nothing happens. The fact is he's being marked by a five foot five centre forward, doesn't know his body position's not right, he gets bowled over and he's not even looking at the ball. Yeah, it's not a foul. Hey, look, I'm happy. I'm happy. I'm team Tarkovsky. I think he's great. And I thought it was fantastic seeing him and Ben Mee flying into attack crosses. I actually thought he'd headed the crossbar when you watch it without the replay. (laughs) Because you hear the cross, someone bangs into the crossbar. I thought he's headed the ball, barged the player out of the way and then headed the crossbar. Such is his determination to score. So that was my moment of the weekend. But you're right, it is 
slightly concerning for Dyche and Burnley fans. There are a few games last season where obviously I'm, I'm a big, big fan of Burnley because I think they provide great balance in the league, uh, in the Premier League and a great contrast at times. And the way they play provides great tactical battles at times. But there was a few times last season where they were very un-Burnley-like. They looked quite soft, quite easy to to pick apart. And the two Brighton goals, I thought, were quite good moves, quite good counter-attacks, but they weren't they weren't the best goals. And as a Burnley fan, you'd be a bit worried about the nature of that. Not quite capitulation, but the, to lose in that manner at home, having been so dominant in the first half, is a little bit of a worry. Burnley's biggest signing is Nathan Collins, £12 million, but he's a centre-half and he won't play. Burnley needs need to strengthen other areas of the pitch. I haven't said all that. This is one time where I will back up Tom's mantra and say, let's not get carried away because <laughs> Burnley, I don't think Burnley won until November last season and they stayed up. Burnley do what Burnley do and I don't think that will change. Very brief mention to the other, my other favourite thing from the opening weekend, Graham Potter's facial hair. Absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> it looks, it looks, I mean, I, Graham, if you're listening, don't take any personal offence to this. I can't grow any beard or moustache or any sort of facial hair whatsoever. I've never been able to in my 32 years, but it looks stuck on, mate. I don't understand. It looks like someone's drawn it on. It's <laughs> remarkable. I did, I, we were talking about this before the show, and he's kind of going for some kind of trendy re, redesign, isn't he? He's trying to, right, as well as Brighton kicking on to the next level and no longer scrapping against relegation, Graham Potter's trying to re- reinvent himself. He's trying everything. It's like Madonna over the course of her entire career pushed into an 18 month length of time. Um, Graham, if you need any advice, give the boys a call. I don't know where at Hugo Boss or something. Go in, get yourself styled. I'm sure they got personal shoppers, etc. And you got the money now. They gave you a what, seven year deal or something. Anyway, let's move on to the game at St. James's Park. Newcastle 2, West Ham 4. I was worried for West Ham at a couple of points during this game, but they managed to take all three points in the end. And Strangely, you know, we're talking about not taking too much from the the first weekend. Newcastle fans booing at full time. Not all of them, of course, but a smattering of booing at full time after the first game of the season. Gregor, that doesn't bode well. No, but I mean, and I think, you know, I understand uh, Newcastle supporters' uh, grapes with with everything that's been going on at that football club for a long time. And they're not a fan of, you know, they see Steve Bruce as sort of emblematic of their acceptance of being deeply average, basically, um, as a football club. Um, but I think it was slightly unjustified this time because I think as much as, you know, West Ham fans had the same sort of views of David Moyes when he returned to the club, is both these supporters thought we've got a, a dinosaur on a dugout. Uh, and this was, two, this was two teams going at it. It was really entertaining. Um, and both teams full of attacking, attacking intent. Um, Newcastle, there's probably not a lot changed the fact is that they're still going to be so heavily reliant on on Sam Maximan, who was, you know, the way he twisted up Declan Rice for that that cross for Callum Wilson's opener was just sublime. Um, I've been there, and you know, I think I think he's going to be pivotal, but his fitness record is really is really patchy for him. So, on the other side, I think West Ham, the front three were were outstanding, and what do side Ben Rama, um, Antonio, and, and Bowen have in common? All hewn in the EFL. And Ivan Tony and Adam Armstrong. It's, 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 I'm telling you, the year of the EFL. This is, it's a, it'll be a growing theme, I'm telling you. Armstrong as well, stepping up, I'm sure he'll score goals. But those three were brilliant. Bowen, the way he kind of slalomed and he should have scored in the, in the first half. Uh, Antonio's, I think that was his 47th goal for them. And he's been a right wing back, he's been a, a winger. Now he's a kind of auxiliary centre forward. Um, and Ben Ram, although he had a difficult start to life last season at West Ham, hugely, hugely talented player. So, uh, you know, I think I actually think that both these teams could be uh, Newcastle fans will, were kind of worried leading into the season, but I think Newcastle again will be okay, and West Ham again will be certainly safely ensconced in the in the top half of the table. Yep, a good weekend for Mikel Antonio, a good weekend for Jamie Vardy with the winner once again for Leicester City. They beat Wolves by a goal to nil. Lovely bit of movement from Jamie Vardy in that game as well. Bruno Large, though, the Wolves boss, you know, at the end of the game, I think he was quite good just talking about the process and getting where they need to be and seeing green shoot 
I think there could be a new style at Wolves that, that proves very fruitful. What do you think, Tom? Yeah, I think you're right. I think it will... They, they, if any team embodies my let's not get carried away, let's give them some time motto of this podcast, it's Wolves. Because Nuno had such an impact on that club and on the team and had such a definitive style and way of playing that it'll take any new manager a bit of time. They've lost a few key players. It's obviously great to see Ralph Jimenez back playing again after the injury that he suffered last season. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to watch. I just hope the fans, if, if they have a difficult run of opening games and results, it doesn't get pressure on because it'd be interesting to see what can happen. It was interesting to see Traore playing kind of up top and running running off the shoulder, running in behind. Probably should have scored with his chance. But yeah, it, 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 it could be really interesting to see. And as you say, Jamie Vardy. I mean, my God, what a finish that was. So, so good. So good. And just completely taken for granted. That was such a good finish. I think he's the best I've ever seen at that near post run. You look at the defender and think, you know, he's if you allowed him to get across you there. With Vardy, not just in this instance, you think he's got no chance. His timing is so perfect. And the kind of deafness of the touch outside the left boot, I think it was. I think it was Conor Cody that was the, the defender. And you see him just sitting on the floor thinking afterwards, no, I'm not sure I could have done anything about that. <laughs> like, I don't, I just think he's, he's the timing he's run, his speed and his kind of agility to, to flick the ball in. He's the best that I've ever seen at doing that, really. Good win for Leicester to start the season. I won't talk about their title chances just yet, but um, building nicely after game one. Um, two other sides who will be looking at the top of the table to end and two 3-0 wins. Uh, one at Stamford Bridge, Chelsea 3, Crystal Palace 0 and at Carrow Road as well. Norwich 0, Liverpool 3. Let's start with the European champions, though, Chelsea. A comfortable win, Gregor. What did you make of Palace under Patrick Vieira, though? Much has been made of the kind of the all the changes that have that have happened there at some. I believe Mark Gueye, the centre half, was the only of their new signings to start. So really, this was the same old Palace. And you look at the bench, and half of the bench was academy players. They still need they still need new recruits. And Patrick Vieira came out and said that afterwards. The, there was a bit of a change of approach in the way that they were trying to kind of build from the back. And then when you're going one, two, and then three down, obviously your your instinct is to is to not have, have an embarrassing afternoon. But the, the story of the day was undoubtedly Trevor Chalaba, um, who made his debut in the Super Cup last week. And then you know, I, I covered the EFL, I saw him play for Ipswich and, and Huddersfield. And I'll be brutally honest, I wasn't, wasn't blown away by him as a cent- central midfielder. So it's great It's great when you see the someone get an opportunity and in a kind of slightly... He can play centre-half. He could play there before, but being played on, on the right of a back three, it just changes the dynamic. He's good enough on the ball to do that, to to look like a good composed footballer on the ball as a as a central defender, more so than if he was a, cent- a central midfielder. He wouldn't get in the team there. He's grabbed the chance with with, uh, with both hands and it was a beautiful moment to see him kind of the emotion of that and him fall to his knees after over 100 appearances out on loan. I think he's 22 and it all come into to life at Chelsea for him, finally. Yeah, a lovely moment uh, for him, especially um, just to see another young player come out of that Chelsea Academy. You know, so many years, so many fans of other clubs have pointed the finger and said, who have you produced? And the last few seasons seem to have been extremely fruitful. Uh, One Chelsea graduate from their academy who, right, he came from Rangers, but, you know, Billy Gilmore's coming to the first team over the last year or so, and he's on loan at Norwich. And I think he played well. Can't all be him, though. Beaten 3-0 by Liverpool, Mohamed Salah, real quality in his game. Um, the difference maker, really, for Liverpool on the opening day, who I think we can actually say, Tom, are back and will be involved in a title race. Are you waiting to see what else they've got in store? I think it's really interesting with Liverpool because it's like almost like last season, was a they can treat it as a write-off season a little bit. They've got a couple of players back. It's interesting to see Jota starting. But I mean, it's it's such an obvious point to make. But Van Dijk, I mean, goodness me, there was a moment towards the end of the game. I think when they were three 0 up, I think Norwich won a free kick. I can't remember who it was gave away the free kick. I think it was um, the left back, and Van Dijk was straight into him, having a go, like booming, commanding, and then on the edge of the box, getting them lined up. No, in with me, in a line with me, with me, and Norwich actually got a chance from the free kick. But the point was that. That figurehead on the pitch, it was so, so interesting to see. And for Liverpool fans, it must just be absolutely massive to see him back on the pitch. And in, con- in, in contrast to Chelsea, it's like, we know what Liverpool are about. They're going to be the better version of themselves. 
for Chelsea, they're a frightening prospect with the amount of players that still haven't played in that team. You forget the players they've got. I've got a, a mate of mine uh, who forgot about, I was talking to him about the team and who he'd pick and he went through the entire team and I said, what about Pulisic? He's like, oh yeah, Pulisic, I forgot about him. And you just, you've got so, so many attacking players and Lukaku to come in, pff, terrifying. But two very good wins on the opening day for them sets them up nicely. Which sets us up nicely to say goodbye. Tom Clark, Gregor Robertson, thank you for being with me uh, on this episode of The Game Podcast, looking back at the opening weekend of the Premier League season. More midweek football to come. We'll be back on Thursday to tee up another big weekend in the top flight as well. But remember, make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of our award-winning journalism. If you go online today, you will get yourself one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We will see you on Thursday. Thanks for listening.